Hi everyone, welcome to this very special podcast made possible thanks to the support of the Victorian Government and the efforts of several people we'll thank in the credits. My name is Lisa Naftali and I'll be your host, your question asker, if you will. It'd be easy for this intro to sound a bit like the start of a bad joke, a Christian, a Jew and a Muslim walk into a room, but that's exactly what's happening here. Today I'm joined by Reverend Ian Smith, Executive Officer of the Victorian Council of Churches, Muhammad Mahadeen, immediate past president and current vice president of the Islamic Council of Victoria, and Rabbi Gabby Kaltman, Rabbi of Ark Centre in East Hawthorne. In the interest of full disclosure, I'm also the GM at Ark Centre. Later I'll be joined by some fascinating women who will, as we go along, help give a better and certainly broader picture of some of the ideas we're looking at. Now, I don't know when you're listening to this, but right now it's April 2021. And after months of lockdown here in Melbourne, life's returned to a version of relative normality. Well, at least if you squint. This month, we find ourselves celebrating three of the world's most famous festivals within a couple of weeks of each other. As we record this, we've just celebrated Passover and Western Easter. It's currently Ramadan and the beginning of Orthodox Easter. At a time when so many are struggling with so much, when people aren't exactly heading towards institutionalised religions in droves, when we know that isolation and exclusion are problems that are getting bigger, not smaller, it occurred to me, it occurred to all of us. There had to be something in the fact that these three religions are celebrating something so important to them at basically the same time. I don't know exactly what that something is, but why not sit down with a few people, have some conversations, ask a few questions, and hopefully come out the other side having learned a bit, hopefully laughing a bit, and maybe even feel a bit closer to each other and feel a little less different from each other. I'm not trying to convince anyone of anything or sell you on something, but hopefully for people who feel a bit on the outside or a bit uncertain or even a lot excluded, there's something here for you today. All right, that's enough from me. Let's get into this. Gentlemen, it's lovely to see your smiling faces. Uh, (laughs) To start us off, you three know a lot about your respective faiths and festivals and foods and all so on and so on. But what do you know about each other's? So, Muhammad, what can you tell us about Passover? My understanding of Passover is that it's the period where the Jewish people were subjugated a lot by the pharaoh of Egypt. And I think the 12 plagues that came across, I think that's one of the key things. We always talk about pestilence and plagues. And we are in a period of another plague, which is very important to understand, I think. And this particular uh, period was the time where... We had the sacrifice of lamb. I think this is very important because when you talk about a sacrifice of lamb, you also think of Hajj for us, where we also do sacrifice to God and the sacrifice to God, and then it's fed to the poor. But here we understand that this was done so that the blood of this lamb was then marked on every door because I think the this period that the particular plague was going to pass through and the firstborn child was going to die due to this plague. So I think having an understanding of how God related to the faiths and communities is important. And Passover, I think, does bring that out very strongly. Now, Gabby, tell me a little bit what your thoughts on Easter. All right, shalom, and uh, thank you for having me. It's, it's great to be here. What do I know about Easter? <laughs> I'll score you. Give you. Me? Yeah, are you ready? <laughs> well, actually, I find it fascinating that Easter is a celebration or the last supper 
falls around Easter time. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Okay. So I'm one for one. I'm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. doing all right. You're on. You're and on, you're on the score. Um, but that the Last Supper was actually a Seder or a Passover it meal. It was. It was, huh? Mm. So I'm doing. I'm doing okay. So you're two out of two. Yeah. All right. I'm on. But here is when things get a little tricky because there's the Good Friday mm. and then there's the Easter Monday. And Good Friday was when Jesus was killed or crucified? Yep. Yeah? Oh, wow. I'm okay. <laughs> I'm doing all right. Okay. And then the Monday. It's a Sunday. It's so- oh, sorry. Oh, okay. It's a Sunday. So what's the Monday, Monday then? Monday is just a day because we're Westerners and we don't, oh. we don't like the Is that the public work. holiday? Yeah, that's oh, the okay. Oh. So Easter <laughs> Sunday is when, according to the Christian tradition, Jesus will rise again. And okay. Ian, what do you? How much do you know about Ramadan? I know that Ramadan is a month long. I know it moves a week every year forward because of the difference between a Gregorian and Alexandrian calendars. I'm aware that it is the most holy period of the Muslim calendar. It's a time of fasting between sunset and sun, sunrise and sunset. It's a period of what we would call in Christianity a period of penitence. So it's a time of reflecting on your life, your values, how you're going, and it's a recommitment to your faith. It wouldn't be fair, though, if we didn't give each of you the bit of a right of reply. And I guess rather than necessarily um, educating us on the what's and the dates and the what have you, though, I do appreciate the clarification between the Sunday and the Monday. I'm interested to hear a bit about what each of you want to share. Is what's something that maybe people don't know would find surprising would be of interest, or maybe an anecdote, if you will. Um, Ian, do you want to start us off something about Easter that maybe isn't that well known? There are two things probably that is a bit unusual. One is picks up on what Gabby was saying, and it's an extension of that, and that is that Easter is actually the actual events of Easter themselves fall within a very Jewish context. Jesus is actually killed as a blaspheming heretic. So he's actually killed as a Jew. He's not in any way, shape or form. So Easter is about a person who is speaking into but out of a faith context that rattles the leaders and so he gets killed as a a heretic which is a bit of a thing. We don't often talk about that bit, but he actually dies as a heretic. So that's the first bit. The second bit is that um, for the Christian, Easter, one of the really fundamental things about Easter is encapsulated in a story we tell or read. It's in one of the Gospels. And it's a story that happens on on the Sunday morning. And so without boring everybody, the story goes... Really early in the morning, three women go to do their Jewish burial ritual, which was to stand, to mourn, and to refresh or replenish the ointments. Um, They arrive and the stone that seals the tomb is not there and then there's a whole question about what on earth's gone down. Now, there's a whole lot of stories about what goes down. Uh, the church's version of what goes down is that Jesus ain't there anymore. Um, they run back, they tell the men, and the men go, you women are nuts. 
you know, that doesn't happen. It's not physically possible. No woman's heard that since. <coughs> Bit of a common theme, that one, isn't it? Um, then one of the women, Mary, uh, is said to have stayed in the garden weeping in her grief. And there's an encounter between Mary and who she initially presumed is a gardener. So this is wonderful dialogue between, and she turns and says to this person, where have you taken my Lord? The word in Greek is Adonai, uh, which means my, my master, the one to whom I owe allegiance. And in the next sentence goes, and the, per, the gardener it, it says, Mary, names her. And in the naming, there is a significant moment of recognition and newness and renewal. Right. Now, for the Christian, that is the key to Easter. The key to Easter is the naming of the individual so that we would argue Easter is about every individual created in the image of God, way back from Abraham and Adam and all the stories. But Easter is about the naming of people personally that they are now known and engaged and connected to this God story that we all live in. So it's, it's about being seen. Yeah, it's about being seen, yeah. Yeah, right. right. That's fascinating. Really, thank you. Um, we'll come back to Muhammad in a second. But, uh, Gabby, is there something about Pesach, as we call it, or Passover that you, maybe people don't know? Yeah, I think, and um, I want to bust a myth, that a lot of people think that the Jewish people – during the 420 years of slavery in Egypt, they built the pyramids. But that is not the case, and I've not seen any Jewish text or literature, liturgy, mention that. Rather, we built two cities um, called Pisom and Ramses. And uh, it continues on, actually, that as the slavery of the Jewish people um, went on, so it just became very um, mundane, the labor. And it was actually pointless um, labor. They would build things, then the Egyptians would come and destroy them, and they would then be told and uh, um, forced to rebuild them again. And um, so, th so that's something uh, that I guess people might think that is not the case uh, according to Jewish uh, text and tradition. But um, leaving Egypt and the fr that freedom is really a metaphor of going out of your own sort of slavery, your bad habits, addictions, and the things that are really holding you back in life and breaking those barriers. And I think over the podcast we'll, we'll get into that in more detail. Mohammed will... Look forward to what you've got to say. I think uh, lots of people think Ramadan is a, a, a time for feasting, but it is really not. I think, like as Muslims, we know we do break fast, and I think it's also a sense of hospitality because lots of Muslims will reach out to their friends and even the poor people to come to their homes and break fast. It's an honor and it's a blessing to uh, uh, provide a meal to a person who's fasting. Like I remember back, in back in Sri Lanka, my parents would open their doors and we would have poor people come in, strangers walk into the door to sit down at the table and break fast with us. And that was an honor for us. It yeah, was right. it was not us like looking at it as a charitable thing, but it was an honor for us to host someone who really couldn't afford a meal 
to sit down at the table and break fast. So I think it's that sense of sharing, I think that people tend to miss out because these days I think fasting has become like another commercialized thing that are mm. uh, like, for example, like in Melbourne, there's about 70, 80 iftari invitations we get mm. for 30 days. <laughs> so you can just imagine <laughs> how many people are trying to have this. But really, when you talk about Amazon, it's a very simplistic approach that we break fast with a date and water those are the two essential things, not the big meals, that I think, but it's just simplicity and sharing a meal with those who cannot afford. And so that idea of the simplicity, the sharing, that connection that's really uh, seems to come through, not for Ramadan, but I think from, from everything you've all said, it's, it's about ways that we can connect and share and, and come back to that, the, the simple things, as you say. It's, it's, um, it's really interesting. As we're talking and developing our understanding of each other, which is already fascinating, so I'm really interested hearing what's what, what else is going to come out of this. But one of the things is these ideas like being seen, you know, freedom from slavery, this concept of this freedom and, and the individual, and it does forgive me, but it sounds a little bit at odds with some of the things we hear about the, around the place with people saying that they're somewhat disheartened with religion. You know, how is it relevant to me? What about the 21st century? So I, if we just take that idea of these beautiful things you've already said and and look at that juxtaposed i guess onto we're sitting here in 2021 what can you draw on from from the from the faiths from from in particular these festivals of easter passover ramadan that you can say to people well, actually you know how how is it relevant that's my question how is it relevant today Ian, do you want to start us off yeah i think there are two things i think one of the disheartening things is that often over the course of centuries, and for the church it's 2,000 years now, for our Jewish brothers and sisters it's c- coming up for 5,000. For our Muslim friends it is around two and a half or thereabouts, or, um, 15 to 1,700 years. Um, but in all that time what tends to happen is, as you know, Gabby was saying, there is this mundaneness and often what gets lost in the story I think is the mechanism versus the message. So one of the constant struggles for the church is how do you maintain the message, right, in the mechanism of the institution? And often our institutions are flawed. You know, they're they're made with people who have clay feet, stuff falls over. And so you look at the church particularly, in the last 25 years, one of the things the church has really struggled with is its integrity, um, you know, we have a message of hope and love and compassion and inclusion, and yet often we've lived in any other way except for those things. And so you think of first people, you think of, you know, people who have different gender or, dif- or different personas or, yeah, you can think of the scope without picking right, anybody yeah. out. And often what we end up doing is actually the institution isolates and creates walls and then says to the people, but don't don't experience what we're telling what we're giving you. Listen to what we tell you because what we tell and there's a disconnect. Right. And so for many clergy, the struggle I think is around how do we how do we invite people into the narrative of the gospel, as we call it, the good news, how do we invite him into that encounter like that woman at, you know, who we call Mary, who hears the word, you know, Maria, Christy, Ian, Fred, whoever, and is actually named by God and, and in that naming there is that sense of belonging, 
and right. empowerment and friendship. And it connects to not only, you know, the divine, but it also connects to the community because one of the senses is that faith is a communal experience, you know. So it's really tough to be a person of faith in isolation, you know. Faith is best expressed when it's done in community and community are fragile, right? They, they get easily broken. But in that moment when we enact our rituals, when we live out of that love, compassion, acceptance and openness and allow people to come and experience, I think that's where the renewal is. Right. Which is but very when much you get stuck in the mechanisms, yeah. you know, do I have to wear my Elban stole? Do I have to use Latin? Do I have to have a pipe organ? Do I have to have, you know, the mechanisms of church? I think that's what turns people off. I think this year is very significant given what happened last year where people could not gather, people could not meet, people could not go to their places of worship because also during the month of Ramadan, it's very common for people to go to the mosque to have the congregation prayer in the night. There's a special prayer that's called Taravi, which is uh, t- which takes place th- for the 30 days and people did not get a chance to gather together. And it Ramadan, it brings families, friends and also the community together, and we missed out on that last year. And so it, this is more significant that uh, we also are thanking God. He have brought us through this uh, pandemic. You have kept us alive, saved us, and we are now gathering together to be able to rejoice and celebrate and thank God for that opportunity. Right. So a lot of what you've all spoken about today is this idea in various different ways of of this concept of freedom. And I think some, maybe some different words have been used, but it does seem there's a, one of the consistent things across all of these celebrations is this idea of freedom. Why, why do you think um, that idea of freedom resonates particularly now, this time of year? Freedom is a word, I think, that can be taken in different ways. I think... Uh, freedom of movement, freedom of uh, religion. And I think especially now when we are in this holy month is that uh, freedom to express your faith in ways that you would not normally do. And I think it also embodies the whole aspect of coming together and living in a community. I think that community spirit is the key thing. I think whatever faith you are or whatever religion you come from or ethnicity, it's that community spirit of coming together and sharing and caring for each one another Mm. is what freedom is all about, I think. I think Passover out of all Jewish festivals is celebrated one of the most within the Jewish community, and I think, and that's because of the message of freedom, um, perseverance, um, overcoming boundaries and limitations, and because it's it's so it's personal and based around family gatherings of you know grandparents, great grandparents getting together with their children and celebrating Passover, the actual seders. The, the, which means the order. There's a whole 15-step process um, on the nights, the first two nights of Passover that we go through, and that revolves around food and prayers and song. But ultimately what we're doing on the night of Passover is we're giving the next generation their heritage, 
we're talking about how we became a people and we're passing over our story, which is why it's so um, kid-friendly and kids are encouraged to participate. They ask questions. You know, I myself got dressed up as Moses and, you know, I walked into the Seder to the, to the, to the beginning and my kids were like, oh, my God, what's going on over here? And we throw things around and and that leaves the children and the next generation with a sense of excitement, pride, understanding that this is theirs this is theirs to take on forever. And um, they, they inherit the story and the narrative. And so, you know, when we talk about it as adults, whether it's, you know, breaking bad habits, going out from, a, of, I guess, a, a bad place that we're in and trying to find that promised land or just telling over the story of where we come from and what we're about, that is why Pesach, out of all Jewish festivals, are is the most celebrated. Literally, we became a free people, we became a nation, and uh, we see a th the, that all Jewish holidays are themes. So Pesach is the holiday of freedom. Zman Cheroteinu literally means the, 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 the festival of our freedom. Um, and, you know, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year is themed to be sweet New Year with a lot of introspection. Yom Kippur is the theme of, um, you know, becoming a better person, the Day of Atonement, Shavuot, the the, the actual day when the Jewish people became that nation standing at Sinai, at the, at the mountain of Sinai. And uh, I guess Pesach is the, is the easy one out of that, that question. We became free, so it's freedom. <laughs> why, why do you think, what is it about this idea of freedom that this right here, right now, do you think, Ian, that, that really it, it's meaning so much, it's seeming, seeming to mean a lot in particular at the moment? I think for the church, the freedom aspect of Easter is that it is the gift and it's the gift given, not the gift earned. So the freedom is in the fact that it is, the, it is given and therefore it is equal to all and therefore the freedom is in the taking up of the gift, it's a living out of the gift, it's experiencing the gift. Um, one of the really sad things we often say in the church is that you know, by way of explaining Easter is that, you know, put your hand up anybody in this church that if you were given a birthday present, would you take it and say to the person, thanks very much, and then put it on the shelf? You know, who's ever done that? You know, nobody does it. You know, people open the box, you know, or they open the bag or they tear the wrapping if they're a kid. Um, it's in that the freedom is in the receiving of it, the giving, and then out of that grows the, the consequences of engaging with others and this sense of being part of that which is greater. Um, one of the ways it expresses itself for us too is in the fact that it's the same for everybody, race, colour, creed, gender, nothing that interferes with or restricts the gift. And so the freedom then is in it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, how intellectual or non-educative, doesn't matter your marital status, it doesn't matter if you've got broken relationships, healthy or nothing actually that often we as society value others or you know, recognise others, none of that applies in this space. So the freedom then is in 
being yourself before God and before others because all have received this one gift, which is the gift to be known, to be named, to be honoured and respected. One of the other things I think that um, uh, I think clo- close to all our hearts and certainly in all, in all festivals and, and joyous celebration times is food. And we know a bit. We know a bit about it. Certainly, uh, I think everyone everyone's heard of an Easter egg, and uh, I think a lot of people know that uh, um, the Ramadan people. It's traditional to break the fasting right. dates. Obviously, with Passover, we our foods aren't quite as exciting. But um, yeah, my mum's chicken soup is pretty good. Um, but there, but you know, matzah is the, is is the the food that people associate with Passover. So, I it, it seem it seems a bit of a ridiculous question, but. What what is it about? Is it about food? I mean, about this time of year in particular, because it's certainly what you can eat when you can have it. You know, with Ramadan, it's about fasting. With with Passover, it's what you can't eat. With with Easter, I'm actually not sure where the chocolate comes from, but um, <laughs> I'm sure I'll learn about that shortly. But what? T- tell me, tell me a bit about the role of food this time of year in these kind of festivals. So I just want to tell Muhammad that I know why you start off breaking your fast each night. On Ramadan with a date. Do you know why, Ian? No. I'll tell you why. I am all ears. Traditionally, according to the tradition, that's what Muhammad, Prophet Muhammad, <sighs> broke his fast with. Right. So I was at an iftar the other night. And yeah. <laughs> the imam gets up there yep. and is like, we don't usually eat dates as much as we do <laughs> drink, we do. <laughs> drink yeah. Ramadan. And yeah. that's because, that's um why. And, yeah, Passover, if we've got our food so we don't eat Leaven bread, and that is because when the Jewish people were racing out of Egypt mm. to uh, claim their freedom, Moses leading them out, they didn't have time to bake bread and set no. up ovens and, and the like. Rather, yeah. exactly, they just yeah. put it on their back in mm. the sun, mm. according to tradition, text. It you know baked and it didn't rise, and that's why we don't eat. Um, um, uh, um, we only eat unleavened bread, and uh, uh, over Pesach, which is called. Matzah, and uh, that goes for all eight days. Interesting, I'll tell you a fun fact that um, because we're in the diaspora, so there's eight days of Passover, whereas in Israel, they've only got seven days of Passover. Yeah, that's calendar. I know, interesting. (laughs) Interesting. But um, when Pesach comes along, the food is, it's it's different. And in one way, you have to work harder to make it as tasty as it is, but it brings home, as you were saying, Lisa, you know, your mother's chicken soup, that annual Pesach <laughs> smell and taste that, you know, hits you as you walk into the door. It's wafting around the house. as, uh, And it's, it's, a, it's a different chicken soup to the rest of the year because some ingredients you can't have, some you can. And um, I know, for instance, my mother has a separate kitchen for Passover. Right. She opens it up. It's only open eight days a year, and there are things. There's she's got. She's kept my childhood, uh, you know, um, prayer books that I've brought home from 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 school throughout my childhood, and together with all my siblings. And we only see them this one time a year, and we always hunt for you know the right. chocolate yeah. because we eat a lot of chocolate also over, <laughs> over Passover that was left from the year oh. before, and the like. I know my mother's potato kugel. Which is a uh, you know it's a, a kugel is a, a cake basically yep. but it's a potato big potato cake um, if she makes it throughout the you know not on Passover well it doesn't taste as good as <laughs> as the Passover one so yep. there's really something special yep. about uh, the foods. Yep. 
There's a nostalgia, you're saying, and a joy, and a connection. Interesting. Interesting. You have, and you have it your whole life. So you know, explain to us about where, where the what's with the Easter egg? The egg is really new. I got to say that it's so one of those it, Christmas Coca Cola things. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, oh, it's oh. similar. So the earliest known idea is that the gift become is about 1830, and in the early 1830s in Europe, people began to give each other something on on Easter Sunday. Um, now, the egg is a Western, I think, because it's sweet. But there's some symbolism about the egg. So if you think of an egg, it's all the potential of life, right? And so you look at the egg and you think, and we often use eggs as symbols. So, you know, the egg is a symbol of the life that is to come. Um, it's sweet, so it talks about the good life. Um, it's colourful because it talks about the celebration of life, you know, the wrapping on the stuff like that. But not all of us have chocolate eggs. And so if you go to our Orthodox brothers and sisters, you go to the Greeks, so if, you, if you're in a Greek church um, in 10 days' time when they celebrate their Easter, because we have two Easter's in the in the church, and it's because whether you have the Alexandrian or the Gregorian calendar and whether you have a moon calendar or a sun right. calendar. Um, so when they meet, they will have a little event where up the front the priest will have a huge basket full of hard-boiled eggs and they've been decorated in the family homes and people bring them on Easter morning and they're all coloured, multicoloured with food dye and all the rest of it. And they will do an event where each person is invited to hold a hard-boiled egg in the hand and they'll go up to each other and they'll bang their eggs together, right, and they crack them. And the thing is, the first person says, Christ is risen, and the second person says, he is risen indeed. And in the banging of the eggs, the breaking of the shell, there's a whole lot of symbolism. So not everybody has chocolate necessarily. Um, The other thing is that the food around Easter for the church really is different. Mm. What tends to happen is we have a period called Lent, L-E-N-T, which is the 50 days prior Mm-hmm. And in that period of time, it's about it's a similar to a Ramadan, I suppose, in the sense that many people in the church would give something up. You know, if you're a coffee addict like me, you give up coffee. Um, you know, you give up something, and it's a sign of penance. It's a sign of wanting to be made right, if you like. So, and then Good Friday, traditionally, you eat fish. You fish, don't eat yeah, meat. Yeah, yeah. Right, um, and then often families, Christian families, will have a big feast on Sunday as a, as a celebratory meal. Might be at lunch, might be at tea. It's, it varies, so it's all very different. But basically, the Sunday is a day of celebration. Friday is a day of somber remembrance, if mm. you like. Can you tell me a little bit about what the role of food is in, in Ramadan? Okay, food. <laughs> food for a Muslim is like uh, it's there. We all love our food. We all are, and I think the key thing here is we have different traditions. We have different customs with the food we eat. But one of the most simplistic thing is that date and water that we share when we break fast. Or if people can't even afford a date, you have a, just a pinch of salt. All oh, right. So that would be used, and so 
it's again, I think, depending on what the circumstances is, whether you can afford or you can't afford, keeping the meal as simple as possible, but making sure you are able to share that meal. Even if you have one plate, if you have to share it within 10 people, that's the sharing and caring that is mm-hmm. most important. So food, I think, uh, and I think it's it's this sense of when we look at Ramadan, we look at uh, very valued guests coming to our homes. We always say at the beginning of Ramadan, this is our guests coming to our home and we need to welcome and like you would welcome any guest with a lavish whatever you mm. can afford whatever you can you would like to share a meal and you go out of your way to make that meal special so that people leaving that iftar do not go with empty stomach so mm. and that's the food is the way to the soul right yes. <laughs> <laughs> It is a remarkable amount of consistency, I think, in so many different ways, whether you're talking about a, you know, an egg in a, yeah. in a Greek Orthodox church or your uh, you know, potato kugel or, or the dates at an iftar, yeah. that this concept of coming together, nostalgic memories of, yeah. of, of a time, either one's own childhood or a time gone by, yeah. connecting with others yeah. in the community, whatever that might be, it's certainly a strongly, something that strongly resonates. It's no great shock as someone who... Um, who grew up Jewish, that food is a way that we can connect. But I think it's just a wonderful thing to point out about how how common that is amongst us all. And I I know that anyone who's part of any community, I think, would would extol the same virtue. Absolutely. We've we've talked a bit about freedom, about food, about a little bit about faith, but... What are the other things? You're all, you are all in your in your respective communities always. In this time of year, this year in particular, what are the other the other themes that are particularly strong at the moment? I think uh, we have issues that I think cropping up again. I think this is due to COVID and also the restrictions that apply. I think same thing. I think will apply across other faiths. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of uh, unhappiness that we are limited with the number of people that can gather in our places of worship. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big issue and I think that's resonating, especially among our young because when they see the disparity that occurs across in the wider community, yeah. like for example, take AFL. We had 85,000 people gather at MCG that day and with uh, no mass, uh, uh, no social distancing, whereas in our places of worship, we still follow that. We are practicing the 1.5 meter mm. distancing and especially in our mosque, we have also made Made sure that people wear masks when they come. They bring their prayer mats. So there's a lot of uh, things that we follow to keep people safe. Mm. But uh, I think uh, that's an issue that is cropping up in the community. That you know that why are places of worship having so much restrictions yeah. compared to other when, and, and the biggest you, house of worship yeah. of all being yeah. the MCG, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yes, footy might be... Uh, I, I asked a young kid once, what's your religion? He said, footy. <laughs> so, so I can imagine, yes, for some people it'll be, but I think people of faith will look at it and say the places of worship are... The you know and, yeah. and see, when you talk about a place of worship, you're talking about the heart and soul. That's what place Absolutely. of worship is. It's mm. not... Uh, uh, it's not something that's artificial, something that's been created. It's the heart and soul, yeah. you know, that nourishment to the soul and being able to gather together, share together. And in for us, when we play, normally we would play shoulder to shoulder mm-hmm. and people would insist that happened. But we, during the COVID period, have we are now separated by this 1.5 mm-hmm. artificial distancing that we have to practice. But it's that heart and soul that mm-hmm. matters. Yeah. Well, thanks, Mohammed. And I just want to echo that within yeah. the Jewish community because everybody is just so excited 
to get back together. Last year was so tough because the beginning of the first lockdown, that was Passover time and people were devastated because this is as, and I I know, you know, this is the basically the one annual get together with everybody. The Seder, Mm. the first night of Pesach, Auntie Karen is there, Uncle Eddie is there, and no matter what you think of them, you know, you know that you're going to, you know, sit up and put up with everything, but with love. And it's it's a family gathering and your grandfather or your father or whoever it is holds court if they're hosting it and everybody goes around the table drinking the wine and saying the parts of yeah. the Haggadah, the mm. book the, 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 of, the, of text that we read. Yep. And you do it as a family. You do the Seder as a family and people really missed it last year. People, if they were living alone, I know community members that were living alone, they couldn't go anywhere. Um, I must say I did it with my children um, last year and it was quite nice. And this year was also fantastic. We had guests and the kids were just as involved as they were last year. But it's a special, uplifting, inspiring time where Across the board, everybody's involved, from the elders to the children, and it's done with beauty and love. Is there a similar sense of excitement, would you say, in in the church, Ian? Oh, yes. I was saying to Gabby before as we came into this space that one of the things about Good Friday this year was that when we gathered in community, the one I gathered in particularly, it was the first time as a community we'd all been together because as we came out of restrictions, we split the community into hub bubbles mm, or hubs. Right. And on Good Friday we decided that we would do away with the hubs and so we gathered and there were tears. Wow. And there were this sense in which our community they stood around outside and we social distanced and we're in bubbles and we did all the right things. But there was this overwhelming sense of the importance of just gathering. Yeah. And I remember um, there's a person in our community who I've known for 45 years and her hubby's dying of cancer. Oh. And uh, her and I... Uh, we're just chatting and uh, we, we were there and at the end of the service as we're walking out, I looked up and we, our eyes met and she walked across and I walked across and in the middle of the church, we broke all the COVID rules, but in the middle of the church, we had this huge cuddle, this big embrace in the middle of the church and we just wept right. and we wept wow. for the loss of her hubby and he's dying and for, and our friendship. And we just stood there for five minutes in, in this embrace of solidarity and connectedness. And others in the community came and stood around and just offered support. And this lady was able to weep openly and talk about her struggle to see her hubby, you know, who, who was a professor and a real intellect whose mind is struggling, whose body is breaking. And she could just weep openly and there was this community that just stood around her. Mm. And the recognition that, as Gabby said, you know, for 15 months, that's a, you know, that hasn't happened. Mm. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think in all three of our communities, you know, last year, no ifters, you know, really different Passover, really different Easter's last year. You know, right. Last year were the first time in my 40 years as an ordained Pastor, I couldn't conduct Easter. Right. 
you know, I'm struggling to work out how you do what we call Monday, Thursday, Good Friday and Sunday on WhatsApp Live. Now, I'm an old, old <laughs> dude, right? <laughs> I don't, you know, online stuff doesn't work for my headspace. And I'm struggling to work out how you take these which are really experiential. You know, it's the same with what Gabby's saying. This experiential nature of sitting at the cedar table and, you know, the egg, the bitter herbs, the lamb shank, you know, the seven bits of bread. What we do is really that touchy-feely. It's the ritual is the enacting of it. And in a two-dimensional Zoom, it just don't work. So this year, significantly, that sense of engagement. So this, this is an idea I, I want to I want to harp on for a second. This idea of community engagement, yep. and obviously this is something the three of you work very closely with a lot of with a lot of people. And uh, but arguably, these are people who are who are connected. I want to look a little bit for for a second, just flip flip the conversation a little bit, and look at what it is about these festivals this time of year that can be a source of of invitation to engage yeah. and, yeah. and give perhaps shed a bit of a different light. Let yeah. me explain a little bit where I'm coming from. I know, as Gabby said earlier, certainly when it, the case of, of Passover, that it's a time of people who don't necessarily go to synagogue one year to the next, um, they'll come and they still probably wouldn't go for Passover, to be fair, but they will go to their family members for for or even friends. They get involved at Passover because it's, it, it's a time um, and we, we've looked a little bit about what it, what that's about, but one of the things I guess that that um, and one of the catalysts for getting us all together to have this conversation is looking at the people who, for some reason or another, a bit on the outer and a bit other, and as beautiful as everything we've all said sounds, and it does, no word of a lie, it really does. There are people who don't feel part yeah. of that, and yeah. and we've all had those conversations yeah. in our own communities right. with people. And I guess from my own personal perspective, I certainly. Um, have had the perspective when when my now wife and I were first together, we didn't know where we could go, where we could belong, where we where if we could take our son and be part of a community. It was, there was a lot of unknowns, and for us, it was certainly it was really tempting to just not be involved mm. at all because then there's no risk of rejection or, yep. or worse. And yep. we all know a lot worse stories yep. than just than just rejection. And we're fortunate we found we found a community where our family is, is really involved, very much at home. But also at the same time, very conscious that there are people with much harder stories mm. to to tell and much harder stories to to hear. So people feel different for a lot of reasons. Mm. That's just you know, mine's just one reason. And we've I know even we've talked at other times about people yeah. who are in sort of more fringe communities yep. and um, come from other countries, have a different colour of skin, whatever it might be. So what what is it that we can learn? From 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 Pesach, from Ramadan, from from Easter, from the, what we've gone through from our communities, that would be of interest, or or a, or a way to to what what's a message, I guess, that we could give to people who, for whatever the reason might be, they feel other, um, they've had an experience of exclusion, maybe, or they fear that they wouldn't be welcomed. What's what's a, a way to make people feel feel part of it to 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 understand. Um, what is it about Easter? We'll start with you, Ian. That people can say, "Hang on, there is something about for, for the person who, who who feels on the outer, who feels other, may not feel wanted or, or seen." Um, what what can you tell them? I think it's a really tough question because I think there's a theoretical answer, right? But but there's a lived answer, and it's a lived answer that I'm much more concerned about. Um, in the sense that I think we can all say 
go to a local church. But the reality is that is a real risk because as you've experienced and as many of us experienced, right, not all communities are open. I would say my answer would be for people is to seek out, you know, and here's where I lose it. But Facebook, WhatsApp, um, Instagram, is it? There are um, YouTube, wherever you go, look at places of worship. If you're looking in the Christian world, go to those places and get a sense of what you're hearing and seeing in the in the live space because that will give you a notion of openness, generosity and hospitality. You know, little things like if you tune into something and they begin with an acknowledgement of country, you know, today we gather on the Gadigal land or we gather on the Gunai Kunai land or we're gathering on, right, um, I would – that, you know, all people are welcome to come. You know, there is language that you can pick up, and that's one of the gifts of online. You can learn about a community's insights by the language they use in terms of their, how they run stuff. Um, I recognise that just turning up is really freaky and really scary because of all those unknowns. Mm. And I think places of worship, as much as we have a message, our lived is not always equal. So people just need to be real, and I would, yeah. Is is there a message, um, and, and Muhammad and Gabi will come to you in a second, but is is there a particular something from 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 a, around Easter that we can that we can learn from? Oh, absolutely. I think the message of Easter is that every individual is loved of God and given a given the, the potential to be who they can be, and invited into a community of loving, like minded people. That's the potential. That's the gift, right? It is not often the experience, and that's that's where people like me struggle because, yeah, I feel really broken and sad when I hear stories of people who say, I went to faith, I went to a church, and the disconnect between the words and the actions, you know, and the actions speak louder than words. Right. You know? Or, you know, for me, the, the critical thing is how we live, you know, the language is important, but mm-hmm. it's how we live that's critical. And if we're not open, loving, committed to inclusion and recognition, if we're not doing that, yeah. then the message of Easter is actually lost in our exclusivity about how we you know, protect something that we're not really asked to protect. I think for those people, again, I would say it's their choice, but I would say to keep an open mind. I think they need to reach out because it's a two-way two-way message. Sure. I think uh, because maybe the other person has no idea what he or she is thinking on this side. So I think even just reaching out, having a chat, having a dialogue, I think mm-hmm. is something very important. And I would say to those people, reach out, ask your questions, talk about what your fears are, talk about uh, what are the, some of the discrimination that you felt or experienced. And you might find an answer from them, you might find that they are different because every person is not the same. Like you know, take a family, take children in a house; they're all different. Sure. People can react very differently. Mm. So we we need to. There's going to be good apples and bad apples in every community. I'm not saying you know everyone is perfect. So, but I said for any person, just reach out. I think and knock on many doors. One door might not be open, but the next door might be open. So just knock and and I, I have this. I have this. I always say this: 
you can ask two questions you can only get a yes or a no if you don't ask you don't get any answer right so reach out and i think that's the best way yeah so i think the story of pesach resonates with this with with your question and i guess the issues that unfortunately do come up within religious institutions and the like and as the the story of pesach is that as jews we were the minority we were oppressed um we were discriminated against in egypt and we left um and as a result of our experience the torah our book the old testament implores us never f- to forget what it was like to be the minority to be oppressed to be discriminated against and and it's very clear in saying that not to judge to be welcoming to be there for every single person and ultimately those that have had unfortunate experiences within the jewish religion and communities well i'm sorry to hear that and yeah. that's not yeah. what judaism is about and it's not what uh, you know those people they're, they're, it's it's completely wrong of them and i'm not sure what judaism they are practicing mm. quite frankly and i just my message for all of you out there that are listening to this is that um Judaism is a broad church <laughs> we're a big mob and um there's a place for you within it and uh, you know I hear you agreeing Ian and I think you could say the same thing oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. the church is enormous yeah, exactly and so there but is a place it is you. tough to find the place yeah. yeah and and that's where those unfortunate experiences but my are. word like yours I think would be to, to say to somebody if you are really seeking don't give up the gift the founding the point of where you find community where you find the ritual where you find the connection to God is more important so hang in there and keep mm-hmm. looking do your research talk to people yeah. because the gift is critical. And I know I'm not being interviewed, but I'd add to what you you were all saying having my, my own story is that I think that one of the um the challenges can be assumption. Yeah. And I I made a lot of them. Yeah. Some of them, and sometimes I was right. My brothers would say it's rarely, but sometimes I was right. <laughs> but a lot of times I was yep. wrong in conversations yep. with people about, you know, I, I've I've had people who've judged me for being Jewish. I've had people yeah. who, who've judged me for you know having for wearing glasses. It's sort yeah. of it's sort of, people right. people can judge. That's fine. Right. But yeah. Don't assume necessarily that just because you're in a you know speak a different language, look a yeah. different way yeah. in a certain relationship, have yeah. a certain family or broken family, yeah. as you do, whatever yeah. it might be, yeah. that you'll necessarily get the answer. And especially as yeah. you say, now yeah. that you can do a bit of searching online. Yeah, certainly if you went to www.thearkcenter.org, you, you might find some interesting things about it. Oh, now it's your time, Ian. Ian, give it a plug. Good plug. Good plug. I like well played, that. Well played. Look, we've, we've had a look at the past currently and obviously things are changing and mm. a lot has changed and we'll talk a little bit about that now, I think, for, for community-wide when whatever community mm. might mean. but. We are just out of Passover and just after Easter, and we are currently in Ramadan. So this might be slightly premature. But looking forward, what what are, what what's what's in store? What does the future look like? These festivals. I think that COVID nineteen 
as tough as it's been this pandemic for all of us, the job loss, the mental health issues, the lack of schooling, and everything sort of bunched up. The small businesses, the big businesses, are going. Just having everybody that's had a tough time. I think the perspective, how we've all become realigned, mm. and mm. we now recognise. We did, and we said we did. We knew what really mattered pre-COVID, but I think this is really realigned. Yeah. Our thinking, our understanding, our yeah. feeling of what what really, really matters. And we were able to celebrate Passover and Easter mm. now in the middle of Ramadan, and people are just pumped. They're excited. Mm. They're mm. inspired. Yes. They're, they're they're really feeling it like mm. I've never felt before. You know, at the Seder, sitting sitting mm. with guests, mm. being back at a service mm. at a bar mitzvah, at a bar mitzvah that was pushed off. People are just roaring. They and and hopefully this enthusiasm and this inspiration just continues on yeah. within the community. So I think what the last 12 months has taught us is what's important. Yeah? And for many people, if you had said 12 months ago, we weren't allowed to gather, whether it's in a synagogue, mosque, church, temple, doesn't matter, right? People would have laughed at us and people would have said, and other people would have said, well, does it really matter? But I think one of the, the lessons that's come out has been the absence has actually rekindled that sense of what that which is important, that which is significant. And so in my world, in the Christian world, I think what's happening is it is a deeper appreciation for the message, for the story, for community, and a deeper commitment to ensuring a robustness around that, that we're actually open, generous, hospitable inclusive, that we don't let people, you know, one of the things we learnt last year was that the people that fell through the cracks, right. you know, people who didn't have smartphones, people who couldn't use WhatsApp Live, mm -hmm. people who didn't know how to drive YouTube, you know, how do you do pastoral, you know, well, for us what we call pastoral care, you know, how do you ensure those people on the peripheral of the community don't fall off the, fall out of community? Absolutely. So we've learned a whole range of what is important and what is important is community. The only last question is I started right at the beginning of this and I said that I thought there had to be something to the fact that, that it was this year, 2021, where we have Passover, Easter and Ramadan all at the same time. Any thoughts on what that's something? Why this year? And apart from the fact that the calendar's converged, <laughs> <laughs> what is it, Mohammed? What, what do you make of it? I think God works in mysterious ways. <laughs> and I Good think, answer. I think bringing, bringing the festivals together as close as possible. Like Because, for example, us in the Muslims, we follow the lunar calendar. Mm. So every year we move 11 days backwards. So... Uh, Next year will be more in April, I think the whole month of April. So, But I think sometimes uh, it's a reminder that all faiths have the same goals and same objectives. And uh, just bring, bringing these three Abrahamic faiths to celebrate. And even the Indian community had their, and Sikh community had their New Year as well, somewhere mm. around last few weeks yeah. ago. Yeah. So it's been like this, this, been, I think, especially coming out of that COVID period, this mm. is like a celebration of all faiths. I yeah. think it's just that uh, mass scale celebration yeah. that we are all enjoying and we are coming together, we are sharing and caring about each other. Gabby, Nayan, who's. 
I think uh, everything's an act of God. I know everything's <laughs> an act of God. Excuse me. Everything's by divine providence. Yeah. Yeah. And I think divine providence led us to this year, yeah. 2021, having it all bunched up together so we could learn. We thought we knew each other. Yeah. We thought we knew what, how we were celebrating yeah. and what we were doing and so on. But divine providence had it that we needed that extra level yeah. of connection right. that right. was all bunched up this right. year in april and i think, yeah, I think that's a beautiful yeah. thing yeah. Yeah. that's a beautiful yeah. beautiful thing yeah and i think there's a sense in which you know i agree that you know nothing ever happens by chance right you can't, you can't be a person of faith and not and say that but i think there's this deep sense in which there is a converting converging of um the events and people and this sense of the need to communicate and connect. And community is broader than just any one faith, you know. It's, um, community is the people being the people for the people, you know what I mean? And so that, in, that involves, I think, the richness of learning from each other, listening to each other, inviting hospitality and experiencing hospitality with each other. My name is Elite Aloni um, and I am married to a lady called Liz Aloni and we have two kids and we live in Bentley in Melbourne um, and I'm Israeli. Uh, at least I lived in Israel until I was five and my family's Israeli so I still sort of categorise myself as Israeli because I think pretty much every Australian I meet doesn't consider me to be an Aussie, so I think it's because <laughs> I'm direct and loud and sometimes a little bit rude. But I, I become endearing over time, as you'll that, notice in this podcast. That sounds perfectly Israeli and just perfect generally, really. Um, can you tell me a bit about your experiences over Pesach this year? Yeah, so this year we, we did it a bit differently. It was just with my mum and her partner. Uh, normally it's a huge affair of 30-plus people, but this year I think my mum mostly didn't want to go to the effort that she's gone to in other years, and it was actually one of the most pleasant Passovers we've ever had because it was really sort of just geared at children and we were we had a Haggadah, but the Haggadah was sort of like a storybook for the kids and it was um, what I think Passover should be. It was a learning experience. It was a family experience, um, and it wasn't too long before we got to eat, which was the best part very important part of it what uh, makes the way that you sort of observe or celebrate Passover different to maybe what people might be a bit more familiar with or the I guess the, the, the general sort of mainstream view what what would make if, if we had a window into your say to this year what would have made it different um I guess we're not a stickler for the rules it's about the feeling and the sentiment uh and I guess I think even Judaism, like the religion, rather than just Passover, for me it's about um, bringing family together yeah. and um, celebrating our traditions rather than following the letter of the law. Do you feel like that say? is different to a lot of the I, other households that would have been around? I would hope that that's sort of the motivating factor for people. Um, but, you know, everybody celebrates religion. Religion means different things to different people and, you know, I'm not sitting in judgment. But, um I'm sure there's lots of people that would share my my views. 
um, equally other people that, you know, would get something else out of it. So I guess there, there's probably a cult of us around. What what was special, different, interesting about, about this year for you? So last year's Passover, I remember it um, very clearly because it was a, a Zoom Passover and it was the most painful Passover ever because it was <laughs> a room full of people with zero Zoom etiquette talking over each other and, you know, the best part about Passover or sort of any Jewish tradition really is the food and, you know, we didn't even bother making any. We just had like a, a Seder plate in front of us and we, we had like some matzah and stuff and then there, there was no dinner that followed and it was all very sad. And so I guess this year um, off the back of that experience last year I was just very grateful to have my loved ones within close proximity of me and also incredibly grateful to be, um, you know, in my mother's home with her delicious cooking and not having to fend for myself. The way that we came to be here was that we were put in touch by the head chef of Art Catering. Thank you, Dunn. Um, one of the things he actually told me about you is that you grew up in Brisbane, which I thought was quite an interesting uh, way to grow up Jewish outside of sort of the more the, the, the bigger central Jewish communities in Melbourne and Sydney. Can you tell me yeah. a bit about what that experience is like? Yeah, it's like being um, a foreigner in a in a country where nobody knows anything about you. Or <laughs> so basically, the standard response to "I am Jewish" is, "Does that mean you don't get to celebrate Christmas?" I had that about sixty right. million times in my life, and I, I mean, I told them that that was true, but I haven't had a deficient life for it. Like, I still receive gifts, maybe not on the twenty fifth of December, but um, the whole concept of um, not being Christian is so out of the norm in Brisbane that, like, it really it, it requires a whole storytelling. Um, but, um, yeah, so I think the Jewish community in Brisbane is about 4,000. I think here in Melbourne it's about 100,000, so that just gives you a sense of how yeah. different it is. But, you know, it is, on, it is on the mend, Queensland generally, in terms of it. Um, <laughs> It's it's olden ways. I think more and more multicultural uh, as it grows and as people flock to it from other bigger cities. So hopefully it won't be the same experience. But in the nineties, let me tell you, it was very very white. Right. I can. I, I have a picture in my mind. Because <laughs> um, one of the interesting things to me, and one of the reasons I wanted to do something like this podcast, was to look at the different ways that people observe or they celebrate, whether it be. Yeah, Pesach, Ramadan, Easter, whatever it might be, but also what the drivers are, and uh, this is something I've asked, am asking everyone, or what, what would your your words of wisdom, I guess, be to to people who do maybe not fit outside the, the box about the um, yeah the messages that that Judaism can have or the traditions that we that we have, mm. and, and observing in a way that's maybe not not that pretty cookie cutter yeah. scenario we're used to. So I guess um. Good. Pretty good example for this one, I think. When I moved from Brisbane to Melbourne, one of the driving forces for me was sort of a level of excitement that I would have Judaism and an Israeli community around me because that was never something I had and always something I valued in my life right. prior. Um, and so in making inquiries about moving to Melbourne, um, because of the pace at which we had to do it, um, I needed to find some daycare options for my kid at the time. My, I just had the one boy at the time and, and my mum took it upon herself to do that on my behalf right. because, um, we had quite a bit on anyway so um I was definitely wanting a Jewish uh child care 
because that was just something that wasn't available to me in Brisbane. So she started making inquiries here, there and everywhere. And the childcare that she most liked was, I don't necessarily want to name it, but it, it was it was a religious childcare right. here in Melbourne. And so she went and she did the tour and she was very taken by it. And so then she was very keen to sign my child up. And so at the end they asked her if she had any questions and she said, I just have one. And that was, do you have a problem with um, same-sex couple? And the reaction at the time from the childcare was um, shock and and they responded by saying to my mum that they would have to take that away and come back to her. Oh, and wow. so... Um, and so my mum thought that was a done deal and, you know, obviously if they're not going to be accepting, we wouldn't be sending our kid there anyway. Right. Anyway, the following day they called up my mum and they told her that they'd had like a session, an all-star forum, if you will, and um, turns out that some of their staff are actually gay and that they really were very keen to extend an invitation to our family to join the, the yeah, day. Right. And um, we've had, we had such a positive experience since that day in that childcare and they've been so welcoming and accepting. And I think, and, and both our kids, both of our kids have now graduated from that childcare centre. And I think um, it was really a valuable experience for us in terms of opening minds and hearts, but also yeah, yeah. Um, for them, because I feel there was a real growth and evolution and a pathway for other same-sex families to now be part of that childcare centre. So even though it started off, you know, feeling of rejection, it, it ended up being very much acceptance and acceptance not only for us but for other same-sex families. So just goes to show if you, you know, are willing to sort of overcome things that may seem uncomfortable at times, uh, you can really great get some fantastic sort of experiences. What do you think are, uh, can be the, the challenges, whether you feel like you can talk about this on your, your own experiences to having any kind of religious observance. So I, I guess the, the flip side of that, the other way to ask that question is what is it when you have had challenges, you grew up in Brisbane, you're obviously immigrant family, um, you're all too easy to say, look, it's all too hard, the risk is, isn't worth it. So what is it that makes you feel compelled or driven to, to participate, to observe in the way that you do? Because I think the core values ultimately align. I mean, that that sense of um, being part of something, a community that's bigger than just yourself and a history that's very colourful um, and, you know, the, the, the core values within that religion being, you know, family, respect for your parents, um, these are all things that I um, feel very strongly about and I'm very proud of um, and my Jewish history and, you know, what my grandparents went through, you know, to, to give us the life that we have today. Like, I just don't feel like we should be frivolous with that. Um, I feel like we owe it to them to pass that on to the next generation. So that's what keeps me wedded to the religion. And, I mean, there's just so many branches of it, um, some more accepting than others, that I think we can all find our place within, within the rubric that is Judaism. What I guess what should we learn from the story of Pesach that we can bring into 2021 and to our lives today? Don't worship idols. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Um, I don't know. I guess persistence, you know, the, he went ten times to that pharaoh before he let the people go. So I think, you know, there's merit in um, being 
persistent in things that you're passionate about. Um, so that's probably a, a good message. Um, being part of a community is something that um, can take you places and that you can learn from in life. Um, slavery is very, very bad. Absolutely. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that, it is, uh, I guess, that's some of those seemingly ancient stories, unfortunately, all too real and present in our current It's probably life. a message of karma in Pesach too, you know, like you treat people badly or if you do bad people, then eventually you'll be swallowed up by the ocean. So yeah, yeah. be kind. Maybe just don't run from judgment. Um, people form views of people for various reasons that is the fabric of their life, um, but uh, persist in trying to change those views and show people alternative perspectives, I think, would be sort of my moral message to others. Like don't be scared of what people think of you um, and don't let that deter you from shining, I think. We're all different and we're all wonderful because we're different and um, the more we can expand and share on those differences, the better off we're going to be. Thank you, Tazneem, for joining us. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Sure, Lisa. Um, I'm a cross-cultural consultant, which is akin to a diversity, equity and inclusion consultant. And I've been, I guess I've been working in this space for the past 15 years, uh, working in the capacity of engaging clients and communities on, on the importance of diversity, leveraging issues of identity, belonging and racism, seeing how they interact and how to arrive at a point where people can feel more more seen and more accepted. Can you tell me a bit about your experiences of Ramadan this year? Yeah, okay. So Ramadan this year was a slight elevation from the year before and it was almost harkening a little bit back to pre-lockdown times in the sense that we could we could see people, we could have dinners. And so this year I managed to interact with some Muslim families and friends um, over iftar functions at home. Um, I think at a couple of homes of friends, but otherwise I had a few people over to my place. And, and that was, I think that's really important to me to the spirit of what Ramadan is in that it's, while it's a very intrinsically personal time of growth, it's also an opportunity to connect at a, at a social scale. Um, and while we didn't have that at all last year due to lockdown, I think the appreciation for that this year was amplified. Can you tell me what might be a bit different about the way that you you celebrate or observe Ramadan that might be a bit uh, different or um, from what people might be more used to hearing or from the from the from the mainstream or the or the sure. yeah the, the norm I, the, I suppose yeah I think when people often hear about Ramadan and, and what it entails of you know abstaining from you know food and water for for the, for the for daylight hours the focus is on what you're not getting it's on the absence of the nourishment of food and of you know luxury and and I guess things that, that comfort us. Well, and I think probably in the beginning of my fasting life, I would have thought the same, that this is a month of hunger. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, it's austerity. So we understand and we appreciate that. But I think it has significantly shifted. The lens through which I look at it now is that it's the food, not eating food is, is not even the focal point of the month. It's, it's obviously that happens. But for me, the focal point by far is 
the time for spiritual reflection or inward reflection. And I guess as I've gotten older now, that to me is what this is all about. So even though when people see you and you're interacting in work or online, as, as, as it turns out, which most of this uh, past Ramadan I was, even though we're out of lockdown, a lot of my work was still online, mm. and you're continuing your thing. The only difference people notice is that you haven't got your cup of tea, which I t- traditionally have yeah. um, as part of my work routine. It's almost as essential as my laptop is my cup of tea. The absence of that is probably what people were more aware of. Like, oh, you're not drinking. Sorry, if you saw my, if you saw me drinking or eating during my, and I'm like, I honestly I didn't notice that. And what people don't see about me, besides not me not eating, is their inability to see what's happening internally. And of course they can't see that. Mm. Of course they can't see that. And um, that to me is what Ramadan is all about. It's the unseen. One of the things we're, we're, we're wanting to do is broaden some horizons, and I think people uh, know a little bit more and some people know a bit less. So there's, there's certainly, a, I guess, an image or a, or, or a picture people have in their minds about the, the traditional observance of Ramadan. I'm just wondering if you've got an interesting story or anecdote that could help um, people understand a bit better or broaden or maybe be a bit surprising to people. Okay, I guess I, would, I can talk about what's... What, I guess what Ramadan experience was for me, say if I hark back to about maybe 15 years ago when I, my kids were significantly younger, they're all, they're all, you know, adults now, but when they were in there, you know, as young children at the ages between, say, 8, 10 and 12, and they were all very determined to fast. And I have to point out the ability to fast in winter is significantly easier than summer. So, for example, your your fasting days in winter might be maybe 12 hours, which has been compared to just like having a busy day without lunch. Right? <laughs> um, but for kids to participate in that, it was a big deal. And I was never, I should point out, we were never ever insisting that the kids fast because it's not actually obligatory upon children until the ages of puberty. Okay. But my youngest son at the time, I think he was in prep at the time when he was at a sort of uh, a Muslim school. There was a lot of kids from some backgrounds there. And so, you know, he knew Ramadan was happening. He was going to fast because, you know, some of his mates were fasting and everyone at home was fasting. And I'm like, you don't have to, you don't have to. But he insisted. So I was like, all right, fine, go ahead and see see how you manage. But if if you're really hungry, just eat because it's okay. Um, But then he he managed to do it. And obviously they had come back from school. I think at their particular school they reduced the hours in Ramadan. Mm -hmm. So instead of finishing at half three, they they might have finished at one. Right. And for people who were not working, that was great <laughs> because you could pick up your kid, come home, allow them to pretty much sleep from then until my group when you break the fast mm-hmm. um, while you got your act together and, and prepared meals, et cetera. So I don't know how people who were working managed that, to be honest, but those who weren't working, which for me at the time was was my situation, um, worked out ideal. So having that situation of the early, early finish of school, young kids who were fasting, coming home, I, re- I can recall so many nights in early Ramadans where these little kids would be like looking at the clock, counting down on a daily basis. It's 20 minutes to go, then 17 minutes to go, then eight minutes to go, then one minute to go. They're like having their dates poised ready. And then as soon as the clock hit, you know, at 5.16, whatever, date went in the mouth. It was like, yes. Um, and it became almost a tradition that or an experience that we recall now as such a fun thing that we did or the kids did together. It was that ability to come together. And this is kids who might ordinarily be, you know, fighting and scrambling at each other, typically as kids do yeah. so often, but 
the anticipation of breaking the fast in unison became a thing and it became a thing of excitement. And there was a lot of build-up to the, you know, to the eating of the date and then like mass consumption immediately after you break your fast, usually resulting in inability to eat properly because you've just you've binged on, yeah, on yeah. Pure, pure sugar and rubbish in the initial five, ten minutes. But you let it go because that's just what the excitement of Ramadan is. And it's for me, it was about if I could make kids excited about Ramadan and make them find fun in it. And I don't expect them to have the ability to spiritually interrogate the moment because they're kids. You know, they're just about when can I break my fast and when can I eat and can I eat everything? And, you know, you make an extra effort Ramadan to make them, you know, chops and schnitzel or whatever it is that they really love to eat because it's Ramadan and they fasted, you know, little darlings. So it really did become, if you can imagine a month of Christmas dinners, the kind of excitement and anticipation and joy, that's to me the memory of my kids Ramadan when they were when they were young. So sort of the development of, of your family's tradition and, and memories in amongst a much broader tradition and, and, and connection. So it is. And I think it starts off with a love and excitement for the event and not a dreading for it. And how do you feel about celebrating Ramadan in Melbourne in, in at this time? I wouldn't I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> it's I mean it's my favorite city, it's my favorite people, it's my favorite community. You know, I I, th- I feel very blessed, very grateful for all for all that I have. And being in Melbourne, I mean, th- when I'm thinking about I've got you know family in the UK that have endured a horrid situation with COVID, for example, in 2021, and I've got another. I've got a sister in Sri Lanka where it's been appalling, mm. but family in India where it's been devastating. Mm. So I think you can't but help when you start to whinge about little things like, oh, I had to queue up for. I had to queue up for my coffee. He said, you know what? <laughs> I left the house. I, I'm able to get what I need. I could order food in if I wanted in Ramadan. If I didn't have the energy to cook, I had the means to be able to provide food for my family um, because I have, you know, the resources to do it. Or I have a roof with a I have a home with a roof on my head, which you know, so many don't. Um, so I think that whole comparison situation I know we, we, we sort of grow up told never to compare never to compare but I think it's impossible to not compare in a month of Ramadan when you, when you if you ever do sort of find yourself motioning into self-pity about oh, the struggle the tiredness the fatigue compare it to others and I'm not it's not diminishing the fact that I might be exhausted because sure I do get exhausted but uh, it's it's an, it's an exhaustion surrounded by luxury and I'm mindful of that tell me if you can, some of the the challenges that you faced, or the, in the past, or, or these days that you face in in your observance of Ramadan, in, in I guess in being a Muslim woman in in Melbourne. You know what the struggle is logistical, logistical to the point where if I know and I want this month to be an opportunity for me to grow spiritually, then you know you you can't intuitively get into the spiritual realm when you're in a frantic rush to finish work and to cook dinner and to get things ready and to make sure you've got shopping items ready and you make sure the kids done their homework and you make sure, you know, the car's got petrol. And you're thinking and you're balancing the numerous things of life um, at a time when, the, while, while mercifully, you know, Ramadan and Maghrib, when you break your fast, would end at like 5.15, 5.20, 5.30, which was great, the ability to prepare a meal when you are working, sometimes finishing work at 5 o'clock or 5.15, sometimes 5.30, meant that the logistical capability of getting everything ready and in being in the spiritual moment 
was significantly compromised. It's, it's got to be said, I think it's significantly harder for women because you are working and you do tend to have the primary um, responsibility often, you know, for, for good or bad of, of, of ensuring the meals are there and the resources there to prepare the meals and get everything done. And women being women, I mean, the mental load of mass organisation of, of kids where they're at and meals where they're at and what's in the pantry and what's in the freezer and what about, you know, it's just, it just, it just makes it uh, a lot more, and you don't want that to be the the outcome of fasting, but if I was more organised, I say this every year, <laughs> may not be a situation. Or I think you know I'm also a single, so that just amplifies, I guess, the the logistical demands. Although that my my kids are an amazing help; they're young adults, so they definitely do do it. But you you can't but help think about it, and you, you sort of you don't mean to. And my kids are like, "I'm relaxed. We've got it." You just focus on something else, but you know, you're sort of like, but are you sure you've got it? So that's probably my issue. I need to yeah. work on. Do you have any thoughts that you'd share with people who perhaps don't identify if they say if there is a sort of a, a message that you can glean or share with them about you know, the, the relevance of of yeah, of sure. Islam of, of Ramadan this day and age? I think I can say, hand on heart, that every Ramadan that I experience renews my anticipation for it. Um, and I think it's because I find it's the one month where I really try to live and work around my faith and not the other way. Mm. Um, I don't, I wish, but I, I certainly know I don't hold that same uh, sort of reverence for other months of, of the Islamic year, not the way that I do with Ramadan. So it's almost like a thing where I know in my younger years I'd sort of dread thinking, oh, when's Ramadan coming? I'm going to have to be hungry for 30 days. Oh, my God, oh, my God. To me it was all about, you know, not eating because that was the focus. But now that I've shifted to not eating, not even being the issue, but actually just centering yourself spiritually, focusing on having permission, having permission because your faith and, and, and Allah and your community allows that to be the focus of the month meant I could rightfully go to these long prayers. I could like read Quran more in the morning, which I probably would not do it at other times of the other times of the year. I and I wish, you know, the idea of Ramadan is to really instill a discipline that you try to, you know, maintain for the rest of the months. And, and in the beginning you kind of do, but then it wanes. But once Ramadan comes along, you kick it in. It's that whole, I mean, I've got to say most Muslims wouldn't necessarily, you know, be counting down the second to Maghrib, which is when you break the fast, when it's not Ramadan. It doesn't happen. But in Ramadan, people know, oh, it's at 5.23. What is it, do you think, about with, with Ramadan that really ignites people's passion to be involved? Reality of it. it. It really is about people coming together much more. And aside from, I mean, when Ramadan's not on, it's people are still praying. And there's, you know, hopefully still being trying to be decent people and, and do the right thing and hopefully give charity when they can because it's, it's an obligation as well. But there's not that focus on the gathering together, the coming together for, for communal prayers in the way there is in Ramadan mm. or coming together for the breaking of the fast the way there is. Other times of the year, yeah, you go for dinner, but you're just going for dinner. You're not going to break the fast. So I think what makes Ramadan so special and what again? What what sets it apart as uh, an event that is so unusual is the communal aspect of feeling a part of something that's so much bigger than you.
Adipa, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Okay. Uh, before I start, of course, I have to uh, thank, uh, I would like to thank everyone uh, who contributed it and had that initiative. And, of course, much appreciated as I've been included as well. And um, especially in Victoria, we are very, very lucky to have this um, multicultural, multi-faith community and uh, to be uh, proud of our, uh, our heritage. And I think these enrich the, uh, the culture in Victoria or in Australia as a whole. About myself, my name is Adiba Abdo Atia. And um, my background is, of course, from uh, Syriac Aramaic uh, faith. And I'm from Syria as well. Uh, I came, I'm in my town, Kamishli, uh, I'll talk about it anyway later on, uh, in the northeast of Syria. We call it Zalim as well. And I've been here for, um, I don't know, if I say a few decades. I did a lot, many things. <laughs> what are your experiences of Easter this year? Okay, before we talk about um, our experience, like my experience and my communities, I think um, I have to give uh, a bit of, uh, I mean, brief about who we are and uh, our churches. Uh, we are the Syriac Aramaic, of course, and simplifying this complex about Syrian and Syriac, uh, we refer, you know, first to a group of indigenous people of Syria and understanding Syriac Aramaic community required discovering the history of the Syriac Orthodox Church of Antioch and all the East. Member of the Oriental Orthodox family from the land of Mesopotamia, the land between the two rivers, and of course the cradle of Western civilization. Her sacred language, Aramaic Syriac, her holy see established in, the, in Antioch in the year 37 by St. Peter's, and that makes us, of course, the first church in the world. And due to uncertainties, moved to different places, and now in Damascus, Syria. Her martyrs throughout the centuries, starting with the early antiquities till, say, for 1950, and where being 500, 700,000 individuals and destructions of her monasteries and churches, also the uprooting of her people from their homeland. And they have been uh, constantly victimized throughout different religious massacres, discrimination, ethnic cleansing, persecution for hundreds of years, so that they have become minority in their own homeland. Indeed, when looking at um, the Syrian Orthodox, there is a vital need to look at the church, her people, and their homeland, which brings forth a story of wonderful, delightful, magnificent, and creative people, yet mistreated, oppressed, harassed, persecuted, displaced, evacuated, relocated, and uprooted from their homeland which most of times, unfortunately, we feel left out, not recognized or mentioned among the cult communities. We base our Easter date on, of course, on the Julian calendar, which often differs from the Gregorian calendar that is used by many Western countries. About my, um, my experience of celebrating Easter, 
in Australia, especially after uh, last year and what we went through, COVID-19 and all that, uh, was great. And um, not much difference between um, the way we celebrated here or uh, from my uh, in back home, like I mean in Kamshli or in Syria. Uh, usually what we do here in Australia, uh, still we, it's a few preparation, of course, first. Uh, first, the Lent. With our faith, of course, we um, we fast for 50 days. That's following Jesus' way. And fasting in our tradition or faith, it's the hardest, I think, within all other denominations or religions, Maybe ask me why, because starts from our uh, fasting starts from midnight, with no food or drink at all, till the following day after sunset. And through the Lent, we are not allowed to eat any dairy products, meat or chicken. How is the way that you, the, the Syriac Orthodox community, and you personally celebrate uh, Easter? How is that different to what? most people here here in Melbourne or Australia might be familiar with? How, how is it different? Um, well, I guess um, if um, if we talk about the uh, Christian in, um, you know, the whole Christian, not much uh, difference uh, apart from maybe the sweet we make is different. Um, and um, with the Lent, of course, as I said, the Lent is different from... Uh, from one faith, no, sorry, uh, from one domination to another. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, for example, we can eat seafood where the Coptic Orthodox don't eat even seafood right. during the Lent. Um, so a few things like that. All the sweet we made, uh, the liturgy. Like, I mean, we go, we celebrate uh, Easter on, uh, we go to the, of course, after Holy uh, Week, and um, we go late at night, like I mean, uh, to the church, and we stay there till after uh, after midnight. Mm-hmm. And we walk in procession, you know, in the streets, uh, holding candles. And uh, so it's it's sort of beautiful uh, atmosphere. Obviously, your experience, as you've already said, is very different to to what might be a bit more well-known in the mainstream. How do you feel about celebrating Syriac Orthodox Easter here in Melbourne in in 2021? Uh, Regarding Easter this year, I mean, number one, because it's not public holiday, of course, I'm not advocating to be a public holiday, our Easter, but that sort of doesn't... um, Give us like I mean, especially for our, for our kids. They say, "Oh, why, why are we not celebrating? You know, all together, so we can have the holiday as well." Uh, so that's one the downside of that. But apart from that, um, still we celebrate with the family because for us, uh, Christmas, Easter, all these occasions, it's all about family, friends. So still we go to the church. Uh, even though not many people, they can make it to the church. Uh, again, not because they don't want it, but we don't have many churches here. You've talked a little bit about this, but can you tell me a bit more about what are the kinds of challenges you face in being able to participate in religious services, in celebrations around Easter? 
Yeah, as I mentioned uh, before, like, I mean, one of the challenges, of course, because we are scattered all over Melbourne, we're not concentrated in, um, you know, couple of areas or three areas like I mean from north uh, northwest till the southeast we all scattered you know around so that makes you know to have uh, the gathering the all um, our people it makes it a bit hard and the other challenges again is uh, this like I mean our youth our youth of course uh, the same thing and sometimes, uh, like I mean, if they go to, for example, to Catholic uh, mass, right, and very short, where our mass is very long, and then they'll say, okay, I mean, why? why? What's the difference? Because we are all Christians. So why their mass is short and our mass is, you know, this is a small things. It makes a difference. And yeah. it is, a, you know, a challenge for us, especially like the, the parents. And um of course, when uh, they hear, like, I mean, in the media, everywhere, uh, other people, like, I mean, different domination, different faith, always in the news, or they, they have this or that, and they say, why like, why we're not presented? Plus, uh, the other challenge is a flux of refugees we had for the last few years. Mm-hmm. And um, with this, again, um, I'm talking now from point of view of the uh, Syrian Women, uh, Syrian Orthodox Women Association. Uh, again, uh, we had a few challenges. Uh, for, number one, like I mean, when uh, our people, they will arrive um, from very uh, something simple, like I mean, will be the case manager will be assigned Okay, they speak Arabic, but they are, with all my respect, uh, maybe they will be from Somalia, Eritrea, which they wouldn't understand. But because, like I mean, myself, I can understand any other Arabic uh, dialect. But with them, they came, like I mean, from Kamishli, from or from the village. Uh, they speak Syriac, and they speak a bit of Arabic as well. Understand? So that it's a big challenge. Thank you for for sharing all of that. That's um, it's 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 fascinating and, and it's it's um, heartwarming, heartbreaking, all of that. Uh, I guess a, a question that that comes to mind, given there are a number of of challenges, in, not just uh, in regards to religious observance, but in in everyday life. What is it that, uh, given everything you faced, that the community's faced, why and and how do you do you feel not just compelled but so so determined to to be part of the religion and to be part of the faith uh, yeah that's fantastic thank you very much I mean regarding the faith um of course I mean we are uh, myself uh, number one I feel that uh, with all my respect to all other faiths or uh, everyone you know uh, as Victorian Australian or anyone the world I feel that um, Jesus Christ, who was the first one to give uh, women the uh, the status and you know the the respect um, from that one. So that's one thing. And always when we remember, you know, the uh, our faith when said, okay, love your enemy. God is love. So it's all about love, about forgiving. Uh, I think that's every day when I get up in the morning and I say, okay, thanks God. 
like, I mean, give us always or um, whatever it happened, always I think about, okay, love your enemy. So we don't feel that, you know, we are, uh, of course, better than anybody, absolutely not, but we have to accept. And that's what all multiculturalism is about. You have to accept the differences and treat everyone the same. Uh, and um, apart from that, even uh, with the tradition, I guess it's colorful as well. <laughs> colorful and family and, you know, all that. So uh, the hand and you feel that, you know, you are part, you're not isolated when you go to the church and you, uh, you, um, Included in the like, I mean, the hymns, songs, all that. Uh, so yeah, it's um, that's what determined. As I said, back again to love, because to me, uh, when you love each other, that is how we can uh, reach to uh, to peace. Uh, I remember once um, because I write, and all my writing, it's about it's about love. Mm. Uh, one in my uh, one of my events, a lady asked me. She said, "Can you still come in? This is a beautiful, but why always you are talking about love?" And I said, "I'm talking about love because that is my mission. With love, we can make the peace. It's when beautiful. we love each other, it's really beautiful." So, what do you think are lessons that from Easter specifically that could help people who might be feeling a bit? less accepted, maybe they don't feel involved or they feel a bit on the outer. What, what do you think a message from Easter would be for, for people who might be feeling feeling that way, feeling a bit excluded? Jesus, you know, was uh, prosecuted uh, and um, with that still he continues and he sacrificed his life for, for us, for the people. So not to give up and always look um, like I mean always we have the hope that's the Easter uh, or our fight you know give us the hope things like I mean tomorrow I say always tomorrow will be better podcasting isn't what any of us around this table or any of the people we've interviewed for this podcast do for a living. So we appreciate the audience bearing with us with perhaps a few technical difficulties. You might have some audio differentiation between some of what you've heard, but it has been a true honour and a privilege to speak to all these wonderful people and we hope that uh, it's been it's given people a perspective that they didn't have before. Maybe they've learnt something. And we said at the beginning, hopefully, if we can have learned a little bit, laughed a little bit, uh, maybe broken down a barrier or certainly helped people to understand a little bit more then we've done something worthwhile here today. So thank you all for your time. Thank you for listening. And we'll hopefully, maybe even, see you again for another one. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, that'd be great.